What I'm about to share with you are three very different types of love. Now, before I say them, and before I share them with you, I want to sort of stave off any uh, questions you might have. This is not a comprehensive list list of the things that I love. It's also uh, not entirely, uh, although it is in a in a, a very appropriate order in terms of hierarchy, it, it's just not comprehensive. So please don't come to me at the end of the service and say, do you not love your kids? I mean, do you not love the church? I'm simply sharing these three things with you as a way of, of accentuating three different loves, okay? So let me just say that, and when, in one moment, you'll understand why I prefaced that with this. I have three different types of love in my life. I love God. I rejoice and tremble in His presence. I love Him. I also love my wife. I love her romantically. I love her emotionally. She is my wife, my companion. That's a different kind of love. And I also love burritos. Maybe a little bit too much. That's three very different types of love. I love God in a way that I am, of course, striving to love my wife, but it's just a different kind of love. I'm married to my wife. We've been married for almost eight years. We have three children together. I love my wife in a very romantic, compassion, companionship, like lifelong partner sort of way. I love God in a way that both gets my blood up and it, it sort of excites me, when I'm thinking about how much he loves me and I love him, I'm striving to love him. But it also causes me to tremble, sometimes even palpably, when I think about how much of a sinner I am and how much I've been saved from and what I've been saved from. And of course, burritos is a a whole different category. That's more of a a visual, visceral, I, I have to feed my body and so I'll choose to feed my body with something that I like. It's really important and and vital to to marvel at God's creativity in food, and we can marvel in that. So I'm not going to talk about burritos anymore tonight. We're talking about the love of God. What is this love? Where might we go to learn more about the love of God? Well, yes, I was assigned this passage by Pastor Paul, but I, I can't think of a better place to go tonight when talking about the attribute of God's love, than 1 John. 1 John has often been called the epistle of love. It's an incredible work by the, by the Apostle John. One, of course, of five of his works, the gospel that carries his name, the book of Revelation, and of course, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. So, of course, he is the author. He wrote this epistle around 90 to 95 A.D., toward the end of his life, The people to whom he was writing was the churches in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, the Mediterranean Basin. The purpose of this epistle, we can actually look at 1 John chapter 5 and look at verse 13. John just gives us his purpose, just in case we might wonder what his purpose might be. Maybe we might be sort of arguing about his purpose. Well, his purpose is in 1 John 5.13. He says, I write these things to you, who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. This epistle was written by the Apostle John to give assurance, 
to give believers a what we might call a spiritual litmus test. A litmus test, of course, is uh, a way to test a substance uh, and determine its either acidity or maybe its alkalinity. Is it acidic or is it basic? Where is it at in the spectrum of this scale? It's a litmus test. John is giving us a spiritual litmus test. Believer, where do you stand? Are you truly saved? Are you deceived into thinking you're saved and you're actually not saved? Or are you an absolute unbeliever who just needs to come to the cross? So he's writing predominantly and primarily to believers. Now, there were two inextricably linked issues that he was also dealing with. And those two things were Gnosticism and false teachers. Now, the false teachers, for the most part, were teaching Gnosticism. And Gnosticism, of course, was that false teaching that physical matter is evil and only the spirit is good. That's what they taught. And if you think about the implications of that false teaching, that physical is bad and spiritual is good, they wreaked havoc on the doctrine of the divinity of Christ. A really crucial doctrine. A church-splitting false teaching. A huge issue in the early church. And so the Apostle John is writing to the churches in, uh, in, in Asia Minor, churches that he had been part of, churches that he loved, churches that he had a relationship with, and he's encouraging them, he's also warning them, he's combating these false teachers, some are still in the church, some have left the church, there's a little bit of chaos, people are confused about, wait, so, so what they were teaching us was false, but now should we stay or should we go? We're kind of confused, we're picking up the pieces. We're the, are, are those false teachers saved or are we saved? And John, help us, is what they were very likely saying. And so this epistle of First John was written to those churches to combat those false teachings. And also, of course, to give that spiritual litmus test. John structures this book in a series of four doctrinal and moral tests. And he was walking the people through, here's the doctrine, here's the moral test, where do you stand? Here's the next doctrine, here's the moral test, where do you stand? Litmus test, litmus test, litmus test, litmus test. Where do you stand, believer? The main idea and the particular argument of our particular text tonight, which by the way is the third, it's part of the third doctrinal and moral test for us as believers, the particular main idea and the argument, if you will, that John has presented for us is this. God is love. And because of his love for us, through Christ, we must love one another. God is the source. God is the author. He is the perfecter. And if all of this comes from God as part of his attributes, therefore, if we are also in Christ, we must love one another. A seemingly very simple task, and yet, oh, so difficult. Is it not? A very interesting topic and a very challenging task ahead of us. Let's jump in. Verse 7 says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. My first point for tonight, I'll give you five points. I'm going to give you five points, five, 
five aspects of the love of God. The first is this, the command to love. The command to love. This is a very clear imperative. He says, beloved. He, he loved the people whom he was writing to. He knew them, and they knew him, and they were struggling. Beloved, let us love one another. This word love is the word agape. I'm going to talk for a few minutes on this topic, this meaning of the word love or agape. I think it's incredibly crucial to define terms and talk about exactly what kind of love we're talking about. As I mentioned before, I love God, I love my wife, and I also love burritos. We're talking about three very different kinds of love here. So what is John talking about when he says, let us love one another? Well, the essence of agape love is benevolence and willful delight in the object of love. This is not talking about romantic love. We're also not talking about brotherly love, which is philia. We're not talking about those types of love, although those types of love are very important and very vital and present throughout Scripture. But John is talking about agape. Agape love involves faithfulness, commitment, and an act of the will. We're talking about uh, a lofty moral nature here and also strong character. It describes the type of love that God has for us and that we should be having for God. It's not sappy. Agape love is not sappy. It's not Valentine's Day type love where I'll just write my wife a card and she'll be fine. She's not fine with just that, by the way. It's not sappy. It's not, it's not this or that. It's not just, uh, oh, hey, love you. Yeah, I love you too. It's not trite. It's not to be given lightly or, or even carelessly. We're talking about deep, steadfast love and commitment and faithfulness here. This is the love with which God loves us. Don't turn there, but you can write it down. Matthew 22, verses 37 through 39, has a little bit more to say about love. Matthew 22, 37 through 39 says this, And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. And then you can also write down John 13, 34 through 35. A very similar type of a passage. John 13, 34 through 35 says this, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. And then this is the real kicker. This is the application. Verse 35, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Our love for one another is welded to the truth that God himself is love. He has commanded us to love. He is commanding us to love. 1 Corinthians 13, of course, also talks about love. Uh, Ironically, a passage that's often misquoted and also misused. You need to understand the context of 1 Corinthians 13. But that's the kind of love, agape love, that John is talking about. Now, he says, let us love one another. It is an imperative. It is a command. 
but I'm going to throw a really interesting grammatical term your way, and it's hortatory subjunctive. Don't write it down. It's simply a means by which the Apostle John, he's not saying, now you love someone, or, or they've loved someone, or he loves you. A, 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 a hortatory subjunctive is saying, hey, I'm striving in this. Would you come along with me? Would you join me in this loving one another? I'm working on it. You're working on it. Let us love one another. Let's do this together. I can't do this on my own. I can't learn how to love someone else if I'm all by myself, can I? Not very well. So John is saying, come along with me, little ones, is what he often refers to his audience. Come along with me. Let's do this together. Let me guide you. Let me lead you. Let me encourage you. But he's also commanding us to do that. We're along for the ride. Let's learn how to love one another. That's my first point is the command to love. Now look at the source of love in verses 7b through 8. It says, For love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. There's a really interesting pattern here if you look at it very carefully. And the pattern is this. Those who are born, they're the ones who know, excuse me, those who are born of God, they're the ones who know God and therefore they love like God. But look at the contrast in verse 8. Those who have not been born of God, they don't know God, and therefore they cannot love like God. Those who are born of God know God and can love like Him. Those who don't and have not been born of Him, they don't know Him and they can't love like Him. It's a remarkable contrast. Love is from God. If you're not in God, you can't love like Him. And if you're not from Him, you're in grave danger. This is that litmus test. Litmus test happens, uh uh-oh, you're not from God. You're not loving people. You don't know Him. Yikes. What must we do about that? We're going to talk about that. That is the source of God's love, a very straightforward aspect of our sermon tonight. My third point for tonight is the manifestation of God's love. We talked about the command to love, the source of love, and now look at the manifestation of God's love in verses 9 and 10. Look at these two remarkable examples of God's love for us in the person of Christ. What, just, just look at this with me. Verse 9. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, revealed to us, that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. This is a manifestation from the source of love that is God Himself who loved the world so much that He was willing to send His only begotten Son to die a sinner's death on the cross for our sin. That's the extent that God was willing to go to because He Loved us. In this, the love of God was revealed. It was made manifest. It was made clear. It, he, he appeared. He came to us. 
made manifest and not just uh, way off in the distance so that we could, oh, let's see, let's take some notes. Is that Jesus? I can't tell. What's he like? I have no idea. Is he saying anything? No, he was made manifest among us. He was born like one of us. He was born as a human being. He lived among us. He spoke to us. He lived his life in our midst. And then he died for us. Of course, we know he didn't stay in the grave. He was raised again the third day. And then he has now ascended into heaven, where he sits at the right hand of the Father, having finished his work. This is the love of God manifested. And not just that, John goes even further to further describe the further manifestation, not just his birth and his perfect life, but also his death and his perfect propitiation. Verse 10, in this is love. There's a further demonstration, example of what Christ's love is like. In this is love. This is, this is true love, beloved. Not, excuse me, I almost skipped verse 10. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. There's a little bit of the doctrine of election here, isn't, isn't there? We are born spiritually dead, are we not? We can do nothing. We're dead. You ever seen a dead person do anything except lie there? No. We're completely incapable of doing anything. In fact, it's been said the only thing we bring is the sin that causes the, 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 the sin that we bring is what necessitates Christ's death on the cross in the first place. That's the only thing we bring. In this is love. We did not love God. He loved us first. You might even say that He chose us first. He loved us first so that then we could love Him. He loves us, and then we can love Him. His love for us causes us to be able to love Him. We can't love Him before He loves us first. It's impossible. He loved us. And again, He sent His Son to die for us. This truly is the manifestation of God's love for us. We've seen the command to love. We've seen the source of love, the ultimate source of love. We've seen the manifestation of God's love. And now let's look at verse 11 and the response to God's love. The response to to God's love. Knowing where our love has come from, knowing the fact that we have been commanded to love, knowing how God has demonstrated His love to us, what then must we do? What then must we do? How should we respond? This, this imperative is restated. The imperative from verse 7 is restated in verse 11. He says, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. A slightly different way of saying, let us love one another. This is more of a, a moral compulsion. We should be doing this. How could we not do this knowing the way that God has loved us? That's the least that we can do, right? Is love one another? I mean, that's (laughs) relatively straightforward compared to 
what God has done for us and what Jesus has done for us and sacrificed for us, there is, of course, this theme of, of true agape love being sacrificial. It's going to cost you something. Beloved, if God so loved us, which John's not trying to be funny, God has loved us. It's not if. He's making an argument. Because God has loved us, therefore, we also ought to love one another. This is this imperative restated. John said, let us love one another. He told us the source of that love. And of course, the manifestation of that love. And and the example of Christ. And so because of that example, therefore, we should do likewise. We also ought to love one another. And finally for tonight, I want you to look at verse 12, which is the evidence of God's love. The command to love. The source of love. The manifestation of God's love. The response to God's love. And finally, the evidence of God's love. And we'll be spending most of our time here tonight. The evidence. What? How do we... How do we do this? How is God's love evidenced, or should it be evidenced, in our lives? Well, John starts verse 12 by saying a very interesting thing. He says, no one has ever seen God. And on its face, you might say, what does that have to do with a study of the love of God? We weren't asking to see God. Well, John's going somewhere here. He's telling the truth. No one has ever seen God. Moses maybe came the closest. He saw the essence of the backside of God's love. And God had to hide him in the cleft of the rock and his face was glowing afterwards. Maybe humanly speaking, that was the closest that any human has gotten to. And that was just, his, that was just the trail, right? That was just the end. That was just the, the end of his robe, if you will. No one has ever seen God. John is, is talking about this. It's possible that John was offering a very clear refutation of maybe some false teachers' claims that maybe they had seen God. It's possible. It certainly falls in line with the way that false teachers behave and the crazy things that they say sometimes. And they would certainly have tried maybe to say, hey, you should listen to me because I have this and I have that. And by the way, physical is evil and spiritual is good, right? Yeah, God's Word says it. Let's move on. And everyone's like, oh, yeah, I think that's what it says. I'm not really sure. And maybe, possibly as a means of sort of shoring up more false power for themselves, they would have said, and also I've seen God. Yeah, I've also also heard from him in my ear. Yeah. And then maybe in some desire for people to kind of respect them more and listen to them more, well, John shuts that down. He says, no one has ever seen God. So clear. There's no buts about it. No one has ever seen God. So why is John bringing this up? Well, we're looking at the evidence of God's love in the life of the believer. And it's true, we don't see God physically with our physical eyes every day. And yet where John is going is by saying, no one has seen God. And yet, if we live a life according to the way that God wants us to, His love in us, in the body of Christ and in the church, that will be further evidence of God's presence among us. If we live lives of obedience, that will show the world who we really are. 
It will be this amazing megaphone. We love God. People even said about Christians, yeah, they really love each other. It's kind of weird. (laughs) It's kind of strange the way that they are giving their stuff to each other and they're spending a lot of time together. And when one of them is discouraged, they're all helping that person. They're always praying for each other. People made fun of Christians for how much they loved each other. They were striving to love each other. And John is saying, no one has seen God, and yet, when people look at you as you are striving to live with these truths in mind, people will see Christ in you. Why do I say that? Because John says, in the second half of verse 12, if we love one another, God abides in us. And His love is perfected in us. Not only is love within the body of Christ evidence to the world about our citizenship in heaven, it's also a very clear indication to us internally. What I'm talking about is assurance. If you recall, the purpose of the book of 1 John in 5.13, John is writing these things to them who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. John is giving us this spiritual litmus test. He's saying, if you love God, then that means that you know Him. And if you know Him, then you've been born of Him. And therefore, you're passing that spiritual litmus test. And it can, it can really bring about some, some eternal assurance, some, some confidence, not in ourselves. I am so loving, and therefore I must be a Christian. Hold on a second. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about a love from God. He's the source. He's the one who sent His Son to die for us. He's the one who's commanding us to respond to this love. If we're able to love, albeit failingly and and haltingly and inconsistently, but genuinely, not perfection, but direction, as God perfects us, as He's working in us, through sanctification, as we're working out our own faith with fear and trembling, it says, comma, for it is God who is at work within you. God's love manifested in the life of a solitary believer and in a small group of believers, in a whole church full of believers, in even the global church. This is evidence of the fact that these people are of God, that they love Him, and the fact that He abides in us and is doing a work within us. There's that external clarity, that external proclamation, as well as internal peace and assurance that this spiritual litmus test can bring to us. God's love in us as believers can be seen when our love for others flowing from an apprehension of God's love for us, evidences the reality of our salvation. There's a very helpful quote I just gave you. Let me read it one more time. God's love in us as believers can be seen when our love for others, flowing from first apprehending and comprehending what God has done for us, that evidences the reality of our salvation. Not sappy internal feelings i have great feeling i'm sending positive thoughts toward god when people say that even in ignorance it drives me nuts i can't handle that 
There's no such thing as sending positive thoughts. I don't want your positive thoughts. How about you pray for me? How about you ask me how I'm doing? I'll ask how you're doing. I'll pray for you. And when I say I'm going to pray for you, I'm actually going to do it. I'm not going to have us raise our hands, but if I did, we'd all be raising our hands. If I said, raise your hand if you have told someone you were going to pray for them, and then you forgot. I, would, I don't have enough hands to raise. I don't have enough fingers or toes to show you. I have failed in that. This is the result of John's spiritual litmus test. So, where do we go from here? Why? Why are we talking about the love of God? How do we do this? Shane, you've talked a lot about tonight about what God's love is, but how do we actually live it out practically? Give us something. Well, John, as part of this epistle, has three very vital sub-themes. And I think that they, they, they really tie into our message tonight. Over the course of this epistle, in these five chapters, John is, is making very clear that as a result of this spiritual litmus test, he's saying three things. Are you ready? Number one, sound faith results in true spiritual joy in Christ. Sound faith results in true spiritual joy in Christ. The second one he's saying, the second sub-theme, if you will, under this wanting to give people assurance by giving them the spiritual litmus test, the second one is that John is saying obedience will result in holiness. Obedience results in holiness. And our third one is that, as I've sort of alluded to before tonight, true love leads to assurance and eternal security. True godly love results in assurance and eternal security. We need to be doing a spiritual litmus test every single day, beloved. Don't just do it on Sundays. Don't just do it on communion Sundays. Don't just do it at the Christmas Eve service or the Easter morning service or when you've committed some horrible, foul sin. Give yourself a spiritual litmus test every single day. Sound faith leads to true spiritual joy. Obedience leads to holiness. And love, true godly love, leads to assurance and, of course, eternal security. So let me summarize, if I can, the argument that John has presented for us. Bear with me. A lot of if statements, and at the end, it'll be a then statement. If, 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 then. Listen to this. If God is love, which he is, if love is from God, which it is, if in love he loved us first, which he did, if in love he sent his only son into the world to be a propitiation that is a payment of our sins, which he did. If anyone who truly knows and loves God has his abiding love within them, which for those who are believers, they do. If God's love is to be perfected and manifested in us as believers, which we need to be striving for, with all these truths in our minds and hearts, considering all that God has in love, who He is and what He's done for us, brothers and sisters, 
the very least that we can do is love one another. That's the very least that we can do. And we're commanded to do it. So what does true love in the body of Christ look like? This is not an exhaustive list. But here's some guiding principles. True love, true godly love, looks like being patient with each other. Easier said than done. Bearing patiently with each other's weaknesses. Also remembering that they bear up under our weaknesses. It looks like serving one another sacrificially. Not just, not just when it's easy, but also when it hurts. Maybe it hurts us time-wise. Maybe it hurts us financially. Maybe it hurts us pride-wise. I don't know what it might hurt, but it might need to cost, it will probably cost you something. It looks like reaching out to someone who you don't know very well and praying for them so that you can then go to them and say, hey, I've been praying for you. It looks like inviting people over for dinner, for fellowship and spiritually stimulating conversation. We've never had anyone over into our home and said, that wasn't very much fun. That has never happened. We've never gone to someone else's house and said, that was a waste of time. We've never said that. It looks like showing each other grace. Of course, grace is, is giving someone something that they do not deserve. It also looks like showing people mercy, which is not giving them what they do deserve. That's what loving someone looks like. It looks like serving each other tangibly. If one has a need, then let's rush to meet that need. And if you are in need, you need to let that, that, that need be known to those who might be able to help you. And for the person who is in need, maybe getting over your pride and being willing to say, I don't have it together and I need help. Would you please come help me? That's what that looks like. It looks like encouraging each other. Seeing someone serving behind the scenes or maybe seeing someone who's struggling or hurting or in need of a friend. Go encourage them. Go be their friend. Give them a, an encouraging word. Don't puff up their pride, but just share with them something that you appreciate about them. Encourage them. Love them in that way. It also looks like going to a sister or brother and speaking truth to them in love about a pattern of sin that we might see in their life. If we truly love them, we will do this. We will do it. Pray before. Deal with that log in your own eye first. And then go love on them and say, brother or sister, I love you. I'm seeing something very concerning. And because I love you, I don't want it to get any bigger. I don't want it to persist. I don't want this to take hold of your life. I love you too much. I often say to my own children, when dealing with some consequences, I often have to say, and I, I got this from Pastor Todd Murray in Florida, I often say, child, of course I use their name, but for, for your sake I'll say, child, I love you. You have sinned. And because I love you, I must now do what love requires. If I don't love you, beloved child, I would let you do whatever you wanted to do. 
Do whatever. I don't care. But that's not how I feel about my children. I love my children. I, I, I'm, I'm burdened for them spiritually. I want them to know Christ, Lord willing, at an early age. To be spared from the horrible scars of sin. And because I love them, then I need to do what love requires. And that means giving consequences and teaching them that, that obedience brings blessing. Yes, but disobedience brings discipline. God loves us and He disciplines us when we sin. So why wouldn't a loving father do the same thing for his children who he also loves? I'd better be doing that. On the flip side of that, it also means being willing to listen to a brother or sister who has come to us in a spirit of love with that same concern. So some of us might seem, might find it easier to go to other people. You might find confrontation rather thrilling. I don't. I don't like confrontation. Sinfully and in my flesh, I try to avoid it as much as I can. Parenthood has, has worked with me on that. But in the same way that we would go to someone else, when someone else comes to you and says, Shane, I'm, I'm seeing something. I've been watching. And because I love you, I'm telling you about it. Because I don't want it to metastasize like cancer. I love you too much, Shane. And then I would need to say, oh, thank you. And have an a, a open and, and humble and soft heart. We need to take criticism well. Hopefully it's constructive criticism. We need to remember, as that person is loving us, as they give us that constructive criticism, okay, they love me, they love me, they're doing this because they love me. We must remember, none of us has arrived. We're all under construction. We all have feet of clay. And if this person has, has clearly anguished and been praying about coming to me about something... I'd better love them right back and say thank you. I need to think about that. Would you keep praying for me in that? Would you wrestle with me in that? I'm not sure if I'm seeing that very clearly. I may have not just one log. I may have two logs in my eyes. I can't see anything at all. I'm spiritually blind. True love in the body also looks like being, uh, excuse me, staying on guard against false doctrine. We must know God's word well so that when false doctrine, and, and, and it will, not if, but it will, attempt to get a foothold. And when it does, the most loving thing that we would need to do is to deal with that, get that false doctrine out of our church, and evangelize that lost false teacher. That's what true godly love looks like. And of course, this is more the more lower hanging fruit. Loving people also means sharing the gospel with, gospel with people who don't know Christ. You guys know that not everyone in the church is saved, right? There are people maybe in this very room who don't know Christ. We need to be loving them by sharing the gospel with them and encouraging them and bringing them along and discipling them. And beloved, if there are people in this very room who don't know Christ, think about the people who are outside this room. Lots more people who don't know Christ. I've been doing a brief study of, of, of a one to one and a half mile radius of our church in preparation for some outreach ministries, some door-to-door evangelism this fall. 
Here's a frightening thought, an amazingly overwhelming thought, within a mile and a half radius as the crow flies from this church. There are roughly 10,000 people who may not know Christ. And most of them don't. And a lot of them are going to churches that we wouldn't recommend that they go to. 10,000. That keeps me up at night. It keeps me up at night. I think about that as I'm walking around Trader Joe's. As I'm walking up and down my street. As I'm driving to church. 10,000 people. And that's just a mile and a half from our church. I don't even know the numbers for Ventura County. Hundreds of thousands. We have a lot of work to do, don't we? True love in the church looks like being willing to go to great lengths, lengths that will very likely cost us to reach the lost, our friends, our neighbors, our co-workers, people in different states, people in different countries and different cultures. I mean, I've got neighbors right now who live right above me, and I think to my shame, and I'm confessing this sin publicly to you, I think that they've only just now realized that I might be a Christian. In three years! That's a horrible lack of true Christian love that I haven't been showing to my own neighbors, the people with whom we share a wall. This list could go on, and it could go on and on and on and on. And we're not going to do that tonight. That just gives you some guiding principles, just some, some buoys, if you will, some marker buoys in that channel of how might we love each other? How might we show true love to the lost world? If you will allow me, I'd like to read this text one more time, knowing the truths that we've talked about tonight. The source of God's, excuse me, the command to love. The source of God's love. The manifestation of God's love. The response to God's love. And of course, the evidence of God's love. Keep those principles in mind as I read the passage again. Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God. Because God is love. In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son, where? Into the world, so that we might live through Him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and His love is perfected in us. Beloved, may our church be marked by this kind of love. As we look to God as the author, the source, and the perfect example of this true love to us through His Son, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father God, you truly have demonstrated your love to us.
we see tonight that love comes from you, for you yourself are love embodied. You sent your Son to die for us. You loved us first. And that love for us allowed us then to love you. We thank you for that work that you have done. We thank you for sending your Son. We thank you for being love to us and in love saving us from our sins. Help us to think about tangible ways that we can use this for your glory in the life of the church. Help us to use this knowledge The fact that we should be so grateful for what we've been given that the least that we could do is go and love one another. Help us to be patient with each other. Help us to serve each other, to to encourage each other, to love each other so much that we would actually go to each other and say, because I love you, I must do what love requires. I need to tell you about a blind spot that I see in your life. And Lord, help us be faithful in that And also help us to receive that lovingness on our own selves. Help us to be faithful. Help us not to be hypocrites in that. Help us to receive constructive criticism well. Knowing that the heart of the person who is giving us that feedback, they truly love us. If they didn't love us, they would let us do whatever we wanted. Because they wouldn't actually care about us. We know that you do love us, Lord. You are love yourself. And because you've loved us, we can now love each other. Help us to be faithful in this. Help us to strive after this. Lord, not only as as an external proclamation of your abiding with us, but Lord, for those of us who struggle with, with eternal security, with assurance, am I really saved? Help us to giving ourselves this spiritual litmus test every day. Do I know Christ? Do I love Him? Do I love God more than anything? And if so, Lord, help me to live that way. Help me to manifest the evidence of Your love in me and in us. And in that way, Lord, the church can look at each other and say, Praise the Lord. God is abiding with us. He's doing a work in us. He's sanctifying us. He's making us more and more every day into the image of His Son, Jesus Christ. We can do that. We can have that joy and that privilege. But Lord, help us not to just look internally, whether internally in our own selves or just within the church. Lord, there are There are billions and billions of people in this world who don't know you. Help us to go and do the most loving thing that we can do for them. And that is to share the gospel with them. To let them know that they have offended a holy God. And short of believing in his son Jesus Christ are currently under his wrath. He is everywhere. He knows everything. He is all powerful. And yet, because of His love, we can be saved. Help us to do that which is most loving and be faithful to share our own hope with those who have none. 
Lord, help us in all these things. We are incredibly ill-equipped. We are not up to this task, humanly speaking. We need your strength. We need your example. We need your word. We need prayer. We need your truth. And we also need each other. Help us, Lord, to do these things. Not for our own glory. Not to puff ourselves up. But for your glory alone. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.